What's up, Joe? What's up, everybody? Today on Sports 360, we're talking to Bo Porter. Bo is a former Major League player and coach, and from 2012 to 2014, he was the manager of the Houston Astros. Bo has also served in the front office of the Atlanta Braves as a special assistant to the GM and as a director of player development and the Players Trust at the Major League Baseball Players Association. Currently, Bo is a pre- and post-game analyst for the Washington Nationals. Without question, Bo certainly knows a thing or two about baseball. But he's much more than that. Bo is a businessman, author, philanthropist, and mentor with a driving passion to help build tomorrow's champions. Recently, we caught up with Bo and had a great conversation that you don't want to miss. So settle in, because we got another good one for you, right here on Sports 360. I'm excited to have with me today on Sports 360, a man of many talents, many experiences in and around the game of baseball, Mr. Bo Porter. Bo, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Jeff, and it's an honor for me to join you You know, on your podcast. You've done great things in and around the game of baseball and sports yourself, so it's a tremendous honor for me to join you on your show. Well, I'm glad to have you. And, you know, the two of us know how difficult it's been over the past couple of weeks to try to get this done with scheduling and all that. So I appreciate you hanging in there and really looking forward to um, just touching on a number of things, Bo, because as I said at the top, you know, you've done a lot in the game of baseball, continue to do a lot in the game of baseball. Um, But, you know, former major league player, former major league coach, manager, uh, front office executive, uh, spent some time with the Major League Baseball Players Association. So, you know, as a union uh, leader. Um, And currently you are in broadcasting um, as you serve as a television analyst for the Washington Nationals. So I don't know, Bo, if there's anything in the game you haven't done or touched upon, but you really have um, had some very diverse experience in in the game. And if I could, Bo, on the basis of that experience, just generally speaking, I mean, as someone who's been in the game as long as you have, how, how do you view the game today? And I'm talking about the game on the field. I'm not talking about, you know, stuff that goes on and bargaining and all that. But, you know, well, what's your view of the game today and where it sits? Well, I think the game today has become very predictable. I think um, when you look at the the true outcomes and and how they have drastically increased over the years, meaning you know strikeouts, walks, and home runs, um, there's been a lot of modern technology that has been introduced to the game that I believe has made the game better in some aspects. And when I say better, I think that our game at this stage evaluate talent better than ever before. And I think that whenever you think back to, I would say, pre, um, pre-analytics, there was a lot of evaluations that were basically the eye test or it was a person's, you know, I would say small scope opinion. But now because of the influx of analytics, we're able to evaluate, dissect, and really pinpoint what's actually happening. Um, So from that aspect, I I believe the game has grown tremendously. As it relates to the game in its totality, I believe that when you start to look at the different advances that have been made and shift defenses, the different advancements that have been made and what is a productive player 
and how players are actually valued and, and compensated, I think those are the things that have changed the scope of the game and has taken away some of the excitement of the game. When I think about when I was a kid growing up, the stolen base was a very exciting play. It's not that much of an exciting play anymore. It's almost a play that, you know, is frowned upon because people now look at the value of an out compared to trying to create more offense. When you when you look at the you know the hit and run, the strategicness of both managers matching wits, I think the three true outcomes have taken away kind of from that aspect of the game. I think it also has increased the number of out of um, strikeouts tremendously because you start to look at the number of players now realizing that home runs are going to get me X amount of dollars and it becomes a go for it all, you know, mentality. Whereas I think there is a balance that can be had. I, I look at the Boston Red Sox world series championship team. And when you look at that team, I was on record. I said this, I said, the reason their offense is so good is because they have complete players. They have guys that, you cannot shift the field on because they have the ability to hit to all fields. They have speed. They have power. I think the other component of our game that I would like to touch on is the tanking part of our game. I believe that the game of baseball, Major League Baseball, is always at its strongest when all 30 teams are competitive. And what I mean by competitive, meaning on opening day, you can look at a roster and you say, okay, this team has a chance. Or you can look at a team's off-season moves and you say to, you can say to yourself from a baseball expert, you go, they're trying to get better. I think that we are in a dangerous space in our game when there are teams on opening day or throughout their business of the off-season make a definitive decision of, okay, we're just not trying to win. I think it has impacted several other aspects of the game, not to mention the quality of talent that is across the board in the major leagues. Wow. I mean, you offered a lot there. Um, and, you know, in terms of the analytics, the, 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 the tanking, you know, what's valued in the game and so on. And, you know, as someone who's been around as long as you have and in the roles that you have, um, you know, certainly want to, you know, delve into this a little bit more because, I mean, you, you played the game, right? I mean, so you were a player, a coach, manager, front office person. Um, and so, you know, now you sit in, in, in the role, though, of broadcasting. And so you get the opportunity to watch the game from a different perspective, I would imagine, right? Um, in your current role, what what is different? Like when, when you do watch the game and, how, you know, how do you go about analyzing the game? And has that influenced in any way some of the commentary you just offered? Well, I'll say this. I, I think that speaking to all the hats that I've worn prior to getting into the broadcasting side, I actually wish I would have done the broadcasting before I managed. And I say that because as a broadcaster and as an analyst, obviously you're going to break down the game post-game. You're going to, you know, have a pregame show where you're going to dissect both teams and look at the competitive advantage of, how this team should go about winning, how this team should go about winning. I think it has allowed me to take all of my different experiences and basically see it through all of those lenses and be able to convey it to our fan base or to the audience in a manner in which, you know, it can be, you know, heavy baseball driven. It can be analytically driven or it can be, from a player's point of view or from a coach's point of view or a manager's point of view because I've sat in all of those chairs and I understand the mindset and the mentality that comes with all of those different, you know, aspects of the game. And I, I, I said this, you know, when I first decided to 
get into the broadcast side of it. I think that, one, if you understand just how hard this game is, I think it gives you the best opportunity to present it to the audience in a manner in which it allows them to better understand the player and why a player would do what what, what, what happened or what they're witnessing. So I think my experience just allows me to see it through all the lens. Mm. Now, Bo, I want to talk a little bit about your start in the game. Um, and I want to take you back. I mean, you're, you, you know, you were born in Newark, New Jersey, right? Um, not exactly, I would imagine, a hotbed of major league talent, but you made it out of Newark uh, to do all of the things that you have accomplished in the game. But, you know, why don't you take us back a little bit in, and tell us a little about how you actually got introduced to the game of baseball? Well, I tell you, you know, you know, speaking of Newark, New Jersey, again, it is, um, it's AKA Brick City. When you, when you think about Newark, New Jersey back in 19, you know, 80, 81, 82, I mean, you're talking about a, a drug infested, gang violence, armed robbery, you know, stolen cars, running up and down the street. It was it was it was a rough place, you know, to live and even rougher place to be raising, you know, raising kids. My mom was a single parent. Um she had me when she was sixteen years old. My dad was not a part of my life during my younger years. So, you know, my mom did the best that she can do. I mean, she was working two and three jobs trying to take care of me and my brother. And our block had a lot of, you know, kids growing up. We were all in kind of the same age bracket. It was about 15 of us that was in the same age bracket. So we would play pole-to-pole football in the middle of the street. We would play baseball in the church parking lot. And it's because we had no place else to play. There was no parks anywhere nearby. There was no place for us to, you know, go and and, and play on a regulated field. So the church parking lot was across the street from the house. Across the street was a house owned by a man named Mr. Taylor. Mr. Taylor, I would hit the ball over the fence, the church parking lot. It would break Mr. Taylor's window. Mr. Taylor would come over to my house, you know, each and every time. You know, Miss Porter, you know, Bose broke my window again. You know, my mom would look at him and say, look, Mr. Teller, I'm sorry. These kids have no place to play. Um, put me on a payment plan. I'll do the best I can to pay you back for your window. Mr. Teller worked on the other side of town at a bank. And now they had Little League on the other side of town, Southport Little League. Mr. Teller's on a lunch break. He's walking down the street. He see a flyer for Little League tryout. He then gets the flyer, comes back to my mom. He said, hey, he said, you know, over by where I work, he said, I saw this flyer, and they have little league tryouts coming up. He said, now, sit on my porch. I watch these kids play. He said, it's pretty obvious to me that Bo is better than the rest of these kids. Have you ever thought about putting Bo into little league baseball? My mom, you know, she looked at Mr. Teller. She looked at Mr. Teller. Listen, she goes, I don't have a car. I don't know how he's going to get there. I'm pretty sure there's a fee. I can't afford the fee. So, you know, my mom gives Mr. Taylor all the reasons why I'm not going to be able to play Little League Baseball. Mr. Taylor then said, you know what, since this is over by my job, if I agree to take Bo over there twice a week when he has to go and to pay the $25 registration fee, will you let me sign him up? My mom goes, I mean, absolutely. So now he's removed all the barriers. I mean, now was Mr. Taylor, you know, a foundation or, or you know, some philanthropic, you know, big mega group? No, he was just a community man who cared about the overall development of a young a young person that he believed had some talent. So Mr. Taylor goes sign me up. I get selected with the first pick by the team that finished in last place the year before, the Dodgers. We go on to win the championship the next three years. I win rookie of the year, MVP, MVP. My little league coach name was Mr. Miller. He was an avid Yankee fan. I mean, Yankee fan to the point where he wore all New York Yankee clothes, um, like to the to the ballpark. Right. So Mr. Miller worked in New York. He worked on Wall Street. 
his job gave him 15 complimentary tickets and this where the day at the ballpark with my foundation and my philanthropic endeavors basically is why I do it. Mr. Miller decides he's going to take the 12 kids on his little league baseball team to the Yankee game. We all meet at the at the ballpark. We get on the bus. Mr. Miller take us, put us on the, you know, we take the, the subway over, go down to Penn Station, take the train over to New York. Now, I had never left Newark, New Jersey, let alone been to Yankee Stadium in a Major League Baseball game. We get there early. We're watching batting practice. This is this is actually the first day that I met Dave Winfield and Willie Willie Randolph. Dave Winfield comes over. He signs our gloves, signs our balls. I'm sitting there, and my eyes are about as big as baseballs. <laughs> and it was that day in Yankee Stadium that I sat there and I said, I want to be a Major League Baseball player. And I've always said this. The untraveled eye can't see. Mm-hmm. You never when you it, it's when you take a kid and you put them into a atmosphere that allows them to dream big. It's no telling what can happen. And Mr. Miller did that for me. Okay, so when you look at how I even made it to baseball, it was the kind gesture of Mr. Taylor hand the $25 and taking me when I needed to go. Mr. Miller now becomes my coach. He then gets me to Yankee Stadium, which now opens up a whole nother aspect, you know, of me feeling like this is what I want to do when I grow up, which now changed. And again, I was already a good student. I mean, I didn't get in trouble, and but this motivated me. It motivated me in a different way that I had never been motivated before. And from there, I mean, you know, I started working out on my own. That same church parking lot, when all the other guys that I was growing up with, the streets started to really grab hold of them. And it was it was one time I was sitting on my porch, and one of my childhood friends, Lawrence Dent, this is when scooters came out. And all of the drug dealers, you know, around town, they would they went out and bought the scooters, and that's what they were riding around in. And I was sitting on the porch, and Lawrence is driving his scooter, riding his scooter. He's going down 14th Street toward Avon Avenue. All of a sudden, the light is green. He's going to just go through the light. There's a car chase. There's a, The police is chasing a stolen car. Stolen car and the police run the red light. The stolen car hit Lawrence. He flies up, goes over top of the light poles, come down, smash face first. He dies on the spot. And I sat on my porch, and I, I was just, like, in tears. And I just – I literally prayed to God, and I was just like, God, I don't know how you're going to get me out of here, but please get me out of here. And, you know, I, I think back to – you know, all of the things that have transpired, you know, in my, you know, career in sports, and I'm going to bring this full circle now, that same Little League, Green Acres Park, that Mr. Taylor took me to to sign me up at nine years old, in 2015, I get a call from the mayor, who was Mayor Rasparacker, and he says, Southwood Little League now had been dormant for like 15 years. Nobody had played there. Green Acres had been closed. He said, um, he said, Bo, he said, I want to talk to you about, um, you know, we got a capital improvement plan that um, that we're going to refurbish and remodel Green Acres Park and bring the Little League program back, and I want to get you involved. And I'm, you know, I'm excited. I'm like, yes. I said, that's great. I mean, you know, whatever you need me to do, Mayor, I'm I'm there. He said, well, one more thing. He said, we want to rename it. Marquez Bo Porter Sports Complex. And I was Lord. I go, what? He said, yes. He said, you know, everything that you mean to the city, what you've done, he said, you know, our kids need to know your history and know that they have a chance, you know, regardless what's going on, you know, in the city of Newark. And I've always said this, you know, ships don't sink because of the water around them. Ships sink 
because of the water that get in them. And even though I was being raised around all of those negative things, I just never allowed it to become a part of me or get into me. And I, and I believe that that's how I was able to survive all of, you know, the adverse circumstances that were just so prevalent that basically, you know, defeated so many other, you know, people that I was growing up with. So when, when Mayor Rasparaka said that, you know, and now you, you look and it's a part of the city. We have over, you know, 650 kids come to the Barquez Boport Sports Complex every day for summer camps. We have Little League Baseball. We have Small Fry Basketball. It's used as a tutoring site during the school year for the after-school programs. So it, it's, it's, um, it, it puts a smile on my face. And, again, it, it, it goes to show what $25 and a kind heart can do. So when I think about, you know, my philanthropic endeavors, it goes back to the notion that everything we do for ourselves will die with us. Everything we do for someone else has a chance to live forever. And when you look at what Mr. Taylor did for me, it's still living, and I believe it's going to continue to live because it has inspired me to do for others. And just like I've been doing for others, and Lord willing, I will continue to do for others, those same people will look and say, Bo did this for me, and I'm going to go do this for the next person. So it just lives on and on and on, and it becomes infinity because it's all about serving and giving and how can I inspire and empower other people. Yeah. I mean, look, Bo, I mean, that that's a, that's a great story on so many levels. And as you just said, and it goes back to, you know, a single act by a single individual that got things moving. And, and, and that's why the opportunity to help someone, the opportunity to encourage someone, to affirm someone can never be, you know, uh, you know, over overstated, right? Because it could lead to, you know, some really remarkable things uh, in the future if you just take the time to do it. And that certainly is what Mr. Taylor did, did for you. Now, um, let me ask you a question, Bo, you know, you know, in terms of some of your baseball experience, because you were a manager for the Houston Astros. Uh, 2012 to 2014, but as someone who prior to that was in the game in various capacities, especially as a player, then as a coach and so on, when you look at managing today in the big leagues, you know, what are some of the challenges and how are they different from, let's say, earlier in your career when you started out as a player? What do you see as some of the particular challenges for managers in today's Major League Baseball? Well, I think, you know, when you look at managing baseball today, I mean, one, you have to be able to manage up and you have to be able to manage down. I think, you know, in the in the days prior to the analytical um, general managers that are in place now, you had former players or people that had a vast um, level of experience in the game of baseball sitting in the general manager's chair. So it was more a of a, I'm going to let the manager manage everything on the field, and the general manager basically handled the stuff off the field. Whereas now I think it's more a collective extension of the front office in the, in the manager position more so works more hand-in-hand and closely knit together than ever before. Um, and I, I don't think that's a, that's, that's a con either. I think that it actually helps the organization because I'm a firm believer that a manager's job becomes very difficult if he don't know what's going on within the other aspects of the organization. So I think that's been the biggest difference uh, when you look at you know, being a manager in today's climate than being a manager, say, back in 1988. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's let's shift gears. Let's shift gears for a second, Bo. Um, because you mentioned in in recounting 
you know, the story of Mr. Taylor and Mr. Miller, um, that there are certain things that you now do. And you mentioned your foundation. And I just want to sort of segue into that, because in addition to all the things that you're doing, because we didn't even talk about the fact that you're an author and a businessman and all of uh, the rest of that, and in addition to your work in the broadcast booth, but you're, but you're also the chairman of the board of the Stacy and Bo Porter Self Foundation. And I love this part because self stands for sports, education, life skills, and faith. Um, first of all, tell us a little bit about the foundation and the work that it does. Well, the foundation, um, one, it's about whole person development. And when we got ready to start the foundation, it was the acronym basically came about because we were just trying to think about all the things that were near and dear to us. And as I wrote them down, I was like, well, obviously sports have been a huge, you know, impact on my life. I said, you know, education is the ultimate game changer. I said, you know, a lot of kids, you know, need life skills and, and, and development. I go and then, you know, my faith is something that I'm always going to stand behind. So when you looked at it, I was like, okay, that spells self. So that's how the name, that was the origin of the name. But when you look at, you know, the, I guess you can say the pocket in which we decided to to dive into and help, it was more underprivileged, underserved, and it was more how can we be a hand in to help those, you know, in need because, when I look at the environment in which I came from, you know, where would I be if it wasn't for Mr. Taylor? And my mom was going to work every day and she was a hard worker. We just didn't have any additional funds that would allow her to sign me up for baseball or where she could afford, you know, to get me across town, you know, two or three times a week. So when we set out to start self, it was how can we bridge the gap and help people coming from similar economic, you know, backgrounds and get them to the places where obviously they now can dream big or they believe that someone cares or we're able to help them with financial literacy. We're able to help them, you know, become a better student, which allowed them to get, an ed get a higher education because now they can get scholarship money. So it's all about whole person development. We partnered with HISD, which is Houston Independent School District, and we've now, to date, we've served over 20,000 students in middle school. Wow. And how long have you been doing uh, the work through the foundation, Bo? We've been doing the work for seven years, and it, it's, it's a full-blown full program. Obviously, we have a before-school program, which is our Boys to Men, and our ladies and leaders of the future, we in both of those programs, it gets the the adults and the teachers and administrators in those particular school buildings. It gets them involved. They actually use my first book, which is Real Life Empowered. It is, and the Real Life Empowered is a 365-day daily devotional, and it's all about being empowered. So when you look at the acronym Empowered, it goes from education all the way down to wellness and, you know, um, relationships. It basically speaks to manners, all the things that, that it takes to actually be empowered each and every day. So our before school program at the schools where the self-program is active, they use that book to basically sit the kids down before school start in the morning and they go over the daily message from that day. And all the principals have raved about it. They said it's been great temperament to get our kids off to the right foot, you know, and it's helped them engage with the, with the teachers and the administrators in the building. When I first got ready to, to um, implement that program, I went and met with the leaders of the school. And I asked a lot of the teachers, I said, let me ask the question. I'm going to give you two examples of two kids. I said, you have student number one, who comes in, sits in the front row, do all of their work. You have no problems out of them. They, they, they're a straight-A student. Everything's on time. No talk, no disrespect. I said, tell me, 
how many times will you talk to that student throughout the course of the week? And, and, all, and all the teachers, it was just like, can I have 25 students like that? And I said, no, how many times? They said, well, I don't have to talk to them because they're doing everything right. I said, okay, let's take student, student number two. They're never on time. They always pass in their work late. It's half done. When you, talk, when you try to talk to them, the conversation becomes very strenuous. I said, how many times are you going to talk to that student? They go, every day. And those are the students that we have. I said, how many times will you talk to that student's parents? Um, we'll probably call the parent probably once or twice a week. I said, okay. I said, so if I was to take the students in this school, the kids that are doing everything right, you're never going to talk to them. The kids that are doing things wrong, you're always going to talk to them, which tells me that you're only talking to them when they're doing something wrong. So now these kids are going to grow up with a thought process. Whenever an adult talks to me, it's because I'm doing something wrong. So I wanted to change that narrative and put these kids and the teachers and administrators into an atmosphere where they're talking to each other daily and nobody's doing anything wrong. And it's been mm. great for the schools. It's been tremendous. We have the after-school program, which also have our club sports programs, which, you know, varies from schools with baseball, basketball, track, flag football. Um, obviously, we do the day, the day at the ballpark. Then we have our tutorial programs. All of our club sports and all of our activity programs, the kids have to do a hour tutorial after school, and then they get to do whatever activity program they're signed up for, and then the kids are fed a hot meal after the end of the day, and then the parents pick them up at 6 o'clock. Wow. I mean, and that's a fantastic point, Bo, you know, because, you know, and it's not even just teachers, you know. I mean, what you just described often goes on in families, right, where you have one kid who's, you know, doing everything that the parents expect of them, uh, and then you have another kid who's going a little sideways, and, you know, most, if not all, of the parents' attention is on the kid who's going sideways. So, you know, that that concept of, hey, you're only talking to me, an adult is only engaging with me when I'm doing something wrong, I think is something that all adults need to be mindful of. Right. I mean, whether you're a teacher or a parent or if you're in some other role uh, as it relates to kids. No, I totally agree. I totally agree. And we want yeah. to engage with our kids even when even when they're not doing anything. We want to tell them how great of a job they're doing, because I think that helps them. Right. Now, you said earlier, you, you, you said you believe that education is the ultimate game changer. And um, so I know, you know, and just hearing you speak now of how strongly you, you believe in, in, the, in the importance of education. Um, I also saw, though, uh, in some of your materials, some other core beliefs you have. And I just want you to speak on these if you could. And that is, you know, you say you believe, you know, in serving, coaching inspiring and empowering others right why are those four principles in particular of importance to you well i think it when you look at those four principles it covers all the bases again we are here to serve not to be served when you think about inspiring other people i think when someone is able to look at you, because I believe that we do more by what it is we do than we ever will by what it is we say, if someone look at you and they become inspired to do more or be more, I think that you, you, you're, you're helping this world be a better place. And then when you think about coaching, I think it's something that's always been in me. And again, I think that that stems from the service, the, ser the servant mentality but feeling like I can help you be better than you are. And when I look at the job of a coach, the job of a coach is to help your player or the person you're coaching to help them reach their potential, regardless what that potential is. So 
that's why coaching is so important to me. And then when you talk about empowering people, you want to you want you want to help people get to the place where they feel like they have complete ownership of their success. Not that it's in the hands of someone else, but you give them the power to feel like if I do the things that I need to do and now you have helped equip me with the things that I need to go on to be empowered, I believe that when you look at those four quadrants that, you know, it it just allows life to come full circle. No doubt about it. No doubt. Um, And Bo, I mean, one of the things I've seen uh, on social media um, and I really enjoy, um, first of all, you're known as the coach of champions, right? And as the coach of champions, you often, in fact, it might be every day, if I'm not mistaken, you put out a quote or you put out, you know, a quote of the day. And, you know, I actually went back and I, I pulled a couple of them. And I would like to read two or three of them and just give you an opportunity to maybe give us a little deeper insight into um, what you wrote. Um, So I'm going to start with this one. Uh, I saw this one a little while back. It said effective leadership comes down to managing conflict and your willingness to engage in uncomfortable conversations. So I'll say I'll say this. Many people look at leadership and they think it's about telling other people what to do. Leadership at the end of the day comes down to your ability to manage conflict because if everything goes right, anybody can lead. You really find out if a person is capable of leading when things go wrong can they can they calm the situation defuse the situation and continue to keep a positive attitude and allow other people to continue to work that's 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 man, that's managing you know the the conflict side of it and if you can't manage conflict you can't lead not effectively but then when you go to the next point, the next point of that is when you think about leadership, at some point, you're going to have to have conversations that may be uncomfortable. And there are people that that's where the rubber meets the road for them as a leader. They can lead as long as all of the conversations are very one-sided or they're straightforward. But when it comes to confronting someone on behalf of whether it's the organization, the team, or the company's beliefs, you have to be able to have those tough conversations. And, I, and I, I've, I've seen people that are really good at this, and I've seen it be the complete downfall of others. And, and once again, Bo, um, the the principles that you – you know, that you shared there apply across the board, right? I mean, again, because we talk about leaders and many times we think leaders in business, leaders in organizations and things of that sort, leaders in the community or, you know, what have you, some sort of structure. But, you know, for me, everything starts at home. So sometimes I just think about even at home, right, or even in the marriage, you have to have some uncomfortable conversations. You have to have some uncomfortable conversations with your children from time to time. Um, yes. And certainly managing conflict, right? Anybody who's a parent and, you know, you're raising multiple kids, you know, managing conflict is one of the skills that you need to have. So um, certainly agree with you on that, that you have to be able to manage those conflicts and and have uncomfortable conversations. And quite frankly, Bo, I think many times, problems are exacerbated because people would rather have what they think is comfort, right? And sometimes that comfort is cloaked in silence, right? I'm I'm just not going to say anything. We're not going to deal with it. Rather Mm -hmm. than rolling up their sleeves and having that uncomfortable conversation, because once you have it, you can open the door to potential solution. Yes. All right. I have another one here. 
uh, one of your quotes of the day. It says, real success happened once I stopped waiting for the light at the end of the tunnel and turned on the light in the space I currently occupy. And, and again, this is, this, this points to, there are so many, there's so many people that there's so, there's so many people that they look at their destination point and they say, let's just take the baseball season, for example. Everybody start the season. Well, I can't say everybody because there are certain teams that they're not trying to be a champion. But those that are trying to be a champion, they start the season, and in their mind, they say, "I want to be a champion." So when you look at that, when you look at that aspect, that's to me that's the final destination point. That's the light at the end of the tunnel. But what I have found out is that the teams that actually end up getting to that destination point, they take care of the process. And the process is everything that is taking place in the space that you are occupying, meaning it's the game tonight, meaning it's the pitch that's about to take place, meaning it's the at-bat that you have right now. or Whatever is taking place right now is called the process. So those that take care of the process the best, will end up getting the light at the end of the tunnel or getting to the light at the end of the tunnel more successfully. Yeah, I like that one. I'm going to give you one more because this one goes against, I think, a um, a, a more common phrase in our culture. And this is what you wrote. You said, yes, I put all my eggs in one basket because great achievements start with being all in. And that goes against that common phrase of don't put all your eggs in one basket. So tell us about that one. Well, because I've seen so many people be a jack of all trades, but good at nothing. And they, they call themselves trying to be in a bunch of different places, but they are not committed in any one place. And I, I'm I'm a I'm a firm believer, regardless what aspect we're talking about. Okay. You show me what a person is willing to give up, and I'll show you their level of commitment. And what I mean by that is, now I can say as it relates to my health, I'm going to put all my eggs in one basket as it relates to my health, meaning. I'm going to have a good diet. I'm going to exercise. I'm going to get regular checkups. I'm going to make sure I'm getting proper rest. I'm going to stay hydrated. That's that's one aspect of my life, meaning I know that as you get older, you got to take better care of yourself. So I'm putting all my eggs in that basket of health and wellness, and I'm going to take better care of myself. Now, someone else can look at that, and they can go, well, yeah, I want to be in good shape, you know, but, you know, I really like to eat these foods. So I, I know that's against my diet. So I'm just going to put a few of my eggs in this basket. So you, when you start to look at commitment, you know, I just, I, I believe commitment comes down to your desire and your ability to carry out what you're committed to long after the mood in which you made the commitment has passed. And in order to do that, to me, you have to be all in. And you got to put all your eggs in that basket and be committed to it. I really like what you just said about, you know, that your commitment is, you know, it's what you're doing long after the mood (laughs) that you had goes away. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but what, I mean, because that's so true. It's sort of like yeah, New Year's resolution or anything yeah. that you decide. You yeah, know, there's, 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 a, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of people that I say they're more interested than they are committed. Hmm. And there's a big difference. Because if you're interested in something, you're willing to do it as long as everything falls in line with your own personal 
wants and desires. But you find out who's committed when they really don't feel like it or the timing of it may not fit just right for them. That's when you find out that they're really committed. There's I, I have a kid, this kid that came through, came through my program, and he called me one day. He was at TCU, and he wanted to quit baseball. And I said, you know, I said, well, I said, what's the problem? He said, well, you know, the baseball team, you know, we're doing, you know, winter, winter conditioning, and they work out at 5.30 in the morning. And I said, okay. I said, well, you know, you only get 20 hours of workout time. I said, so the coach is trying to get the conditioning part of it out of the way so that when you guys get to practice, you're, you're not having to waste field time for conditioning. And I said, well, Matthew, let me ask you this question. Are you interested in playing baseball or are you committed? He said, oh, no, I'm committed, sir. I said, okay. I said, well, if you're committed, then at 530 you're going to be there. Because 530 for you is a personal, is a, is a personal choice. That's, that's out of your comfort zone. But 530 is what time the coach said you have to be there. So if you're committed to playing, you're going to be there whenever, even when it's not comfortable for you, you're still going to be there. He says, he said, he said, coach, you're right. Yes, sir. I, 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 I will be there tomorrow. And three years later, he got drafted. There you are. So it's, it's a big difference. It's a big difference between being interested and being committed. Right. No doubt about it. And Bo, in terms of you and your commitment, I mean, clearly, you know, the empowerment, the teaching, uh, the inspiring of others, serving others, you know, those are things I'm sure are going to stay with you and, and find expression in different ways as you go forward. And as you do look forward, Bo, um, with all the things that you have done and are doing, are there any um, sort of new or, or exciting goals on the horizon that you're aspiring to to pursue in order to, you know, to uh, go after and fulfill these core principles that drive you today? Well, I, I, I got back into the day-to-day of baseball when I decided to get, you know, on the media side of the game. And, again, this was something that I had not done in the game, but my degree is in communication um, from the University of Iowa. And when I came back into the day-to-day of the game, it was because when I look at when I look at the game in this in this entirety, I felt like one all of my experiences, you know, kind of put me in rare company. Um, I know that there is still a desire within me to possibly manage again if the opportunity presents itself. There's also a desire in me to possibly be a general manager. Um, and again, when I think about even both of those positions, the managerial side is how can I help players reach their full potential? How can I help players, you know, um, each and every day, you know, conquer, you know, that great goal of, of, of being of being a World Series champion? I think that's what motivates me day in and day out. That's where the culture champions, you know, come in. Now, even when I was hired to be the manager of the Houston Astros and they were going through a complete teardown rebuild, not one day that I show up to work, you know, basically, you know, defeated by the notion of we're not going to win or we don't have a team that can win. You can ask each and every man, a man to a man, from the coaching staff to every player, the mentality that we can win was instilled in that in that clubhouse with that team, regardless what the organization was going through. So that's the burning desire on the on the manager and, and on the manager side. The general manager side is in a desire to just give back to the game and do more in the game and and bring along, you know, people that I know deserve opportunities within the game as well. I feel like if I'm blessed enough to get into a position, you know, to to hire people, I think that it will allow me to do more for even more people. And and both speaking of more people, we need more people 
like you. I mean, people who are, you know, really do have, you know, a genuine commitment to, you know, well, serving you. other people I, I and, and helping that other means, people be better. Yeah, I mean, and 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 I'm and, and I'm not just saying it either, Bo. I mean, because you know, you, we all know the world we live in, um, and there's a lot of meism out there. You know, um, all you gotta do is look at social media, and you see that. You know what I mean? But yeah, we need more people who are dedicated to helping others fulfill their potential. Um, you know, tap into the greatness that's on the inside of them, provide inspiration and opportunity, as you said. You know, to see things. Right. So that you can aspire to something greater. And we just need that. And so, um, you know, I, you know, I'm I'm persuaded that you'll be able to, you know, reach some new goals and continue to, um, you know, just really be a blessing to other people and helping them reach their goals. And as you said earlier, then it becomes something that continues onward. Right. As those you help yeah. help others and on and on. So, um, Bo, man, I, I, like I said, man, I was so glad to get you on the, on the show today to talk about some of these things. And, um, and I just want to say, man, I'm glad to know you, man. I really am. I'm, I'm just glad to know well, you. I'm, and, glad, I'm, I'm glad we connected as well. Yeah. And, um, you know, just wish you nothing but the best as you go forward. And I know you're going to be successful in all that you do. And so I really do want to, Thank you for hanging in there with me, man, as we tried to make this happen today and for taking the time out to speak with us um, about what I think is a remarkable story. And and the half has not been told. I'm sure there's a whole lot more ahead of you. That's all good stuff. Well, thank you, Jeff, so much for having me on. Like I said, it's been an honor and, and, and it's a pleasure to know you as well. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot, Bo. And we'll be talking down the road. So thanks again. Okay, I appreciate you. All right.